You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Savas Demopoulos is a professor of physics at Stanford University, and in 1981, he proposed the supersymmetric standard model with Howard Jorgai. Most recently, he put forward the theory of split supersymmetry with Nima Arkani Hamed, a theory that can be tested at the Large Hadron Collider, and if confirmed, it will lend support to the idea that our universe and its laws are not unique, and that there is an enormous variety of universes, each with its own distinct physical laws. Thank you for joining me, Professor Demopoulos. Thank you for having me. You have a background with CERN, because, uh, which is the Center for European Nuclear Research. Uh, could you tell me, you had, in 1981, your supersymmetric standard model was proposed, and it was proved using the equipment at CERN. That's right. So one aspect of the supersymmetric standard model was tested in 1991 at uh, the collider at CERN, as well as at the collider here at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Could you talk about the difference between the two? Yeah, the collider, uh, well, the difference at the time was uh, what is called the luminosity. Both colliders were running at the same energy. They were colliding electrons with positrons at the same energy, but the CERN collider had more luminosity, which means more particles per square inch per second crossing. So it was a denser beam. Could you tell me a little bit about the current changes being made to the uh, facility in Switzerland? What will they accomplish for you, and what will they accomplish for the study of physics? So what they are doing now is they are preparing to collide protons against protons at a very high energy, the energy which corresponds to converting the mass of 14,000 hydrogen atoms into energy. So they are going to be colliding protons with other protons. Uh, the collider is about 28 kilometers in, uh, in perimeter. It is uh, a very intense beam. These are uh, micron-sized beams that travel over 28 kilometers and, and collide head-on. Uh, what we expect to learn from it, we expect to learn w several things. One is what is the origin of mass of elementary particles. And the other is we uh, hope to understand why gravity is a much weaker force than the other forces of nature, such as electricity. A and I, I guess one of the things that... Uh, I've heard is being hope that you hope to see is the uh, Higgs boson, the so-called God particle. Could you explain why it's called that? Okay, so the Higgs boson, so the, there is something that's called the standard model of particle physics. This is a, a very successful theory that was established uh, in the 70s, both theoretically and experimentally. And it is a mathematically consistent theory that explains all data that uh, we have uh, ever come across. 
the, for the theory to make mathematical sense, there needs to be another particle, the one missing particle that has not yet been seen, and that is called the Higgs particle. Now let me explain what I mean by make mathematical sense. As you know, in uh, quantum, in the quantum world, the quantum world is probabilistic. So you compute probabilities for various occurrences. If the Higgs particle is not there, is not part of the standard model, it would be a it would uh, imply that there is a problem with the probabilistic interpretation of quantum mechanics in the sense that the probabilities of some occurrences could exceed one. That would mean something would be more than likely to happen. Much more, too, much more than likely to happen. So uh, the, the Higgs particle has to be there if the standard model is uh, correct. However, ex if extensions of the standard model as we expect and hope for are correct, then uh, the Higgs particle does not have to be a single individual particle. It can be a whole new collection of particles, a whole new sector that uh, we hope to, to discover. One such possibility is the supersymmetric standard model. And in that case, instead of having a single new particle to discover at the Large Hadron Collider, we will have a plethora of particles. In fact, roughly one new particle for each known particle should be discovered at the Large Hadron Collider. Well, this sounds like a very significant discovery. Yet, there's been a, a lawsuit filed to prevent them turning on this Hadron Collider, uh, alleging a, a series of dangers. I, I'm wondering if you could speak to some of these dangers. Yes. So the... This, there is a class of theories that w we have not been mentioned so far in this program, which, was, which is the theories of so-called large extra dimensions and uh, quantum gravity at a TV. That is the, the, so I'll, I'll tell you briefly what they invoke. These are theories that were proposed uh, 10 years ago, almost to the day, with, uh, in collaboration with Nima Arkani Hamed and... Uh, Giad Valley. Uh, so these theories claim that gravity becomes strong at the LHC energies. And uh, it turns out that this can help, uh, uh, these theories can help explain the mysterious weakness of gravity, the extreme weakness of gravity relative to all the other forces of nature. Uh, by simultaneously postulating the existence of very large, by microphysical standards, new dimensions, as large as micron-sized or so. So that is the context in which this uh, so-called danger arises, because in these theories, gravity becomes a strong force at the LHC, at the Large Hadron Collider energies, uh, there is a possibility of producing black holes. And in fact, in, in uh, uh, the, the probability for producing black holes is such that under favorable conditions, you can produce roughly one black hole every second that the accelerator is, uh, is running. Uh, so this, uh, this was 
pointed out very early in the as soon as these theories were uh, were proposed the reason uh, there are several reasons why uh, this does not pose a problem uh, and, and so let, let, let me begin in order first reason is that these are tiny black holes they weigh uh, th their mass is roughly a thousand to ten thousand times the mass of a proton, and they evaporate according to laws that were predicted by Stephen Hawking back in 1974, uh, and they evaporate so rapidly that the time that they are around, they do not. They are unable, even if they move at the speed of light, to move from one atom to the next. So even when they are produced, they essentially instantaneously decay before they have a chance to touch uh, atoms. Now, Hawking's argument for the evaporation of uh, black hole is, of course, a theoretical argument, but it is based on very solid foundations of trying to bring together gravity and quantum mechanics. And so that is the, the first reason why we were not concerned about uh, uh, the production of such black holes at the Large Hadron Collider. Independent reason that uh, is based on observation is that collisions at the energy of the Large Hadron Collider or even higher occur all the time when cosmic ray particles uh, that are everywhere in the universe collide with either the Earth or the Moon or a neutron star or, or with stars in general. Such collisions happen all the time in the universe and such micro black holes that are predicted in the context of these theories uh, would be produced in large abundance every second uh, in, in in our atmosphere and the moon, uh, near neutron stars. So if they posed any threat, this threat, they would have already been manifested and uh, such black holes would have eaten the Earth or the moon or neutron stars or other astrophysical objects that we observe all the time. Now, one of the other uh, potential problems is what are called strangelets. Yes. And these sound like, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, <coughs> yes. uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. He has a substance called ice nine. And when you drop one, one molecule of ice nine in water, all, all the water on Earth freezes. That's connected to it freezes. It rearranges all the water. And that's what these strangelets sound like they could be as well. Yes. Again, the best evidence and the most convincing evidence that we have that this should pose no problem goes back to what I was just telling you for black holes, that uh, the LHC is not going to be the first place where such high-energy collisions occur, where strangelets or black holes are produced. Such collisions happen all the time when cosmic rays collide uh, uh, with protons that occur in our atmosphere, or on Earth, the moon. And uh, the 
you may ask the question, if we do have such collisions, why do we need the Large Hadron Collider to study high-energy phenomena? Why don't we just look at what happens with cosmic rays? And it is a good question. The reason, the way in which the Large Hadron Collider will be unique is not just that it will involve high-energy collisions. That happens all the time with cosmic rays in the atmosphere. It is that there will be many such collisions the intensity or the number of collisions per second that are localized in a relatively small amount of space is going to be large enough that we can study this phenomena in detail. And, in, in, and by detail, I mean that, that it will be a very well-instrumented region with detectors that can detect in great detail what comes out of these collisions. And that's the sense in which the Large Hadron Collider will be unique. Uh, there are definitely much more high-energy collisions happening in nature around us and everywhere in the universe all the time. This uh, Hadron Collider, there's, a, I mean, just in terms of the energy that goes through it that's needed to run it, it's like 2.5 kilotons uh, of dynamite. Uh, that's a lot if something goes wrong. That's uh, that is correct. You have to realize that, for example, another f a similar figure of merit is if you compute the total amount of energy that is stored in the whole beam, all 28 kilometers uh, of, the, uh, of the beam, it is equal to the energy of a uh, fast bullet train, uh, TGV train that goes at 250 kilometers per hour. So it's indeed a lot of energy. You have to realize much of the energy of the machine is uh, spread among several particles. And the energy of a given collision uh, does not exist, uh, does not uh, ex exceed the four time, 14,000 times the energy that you get if you convert hydrogen atom uh, into, uh, into radiation. So the energy per collision is not that gigantic by microscopic standards. It's that there is a, a large intensity of particles or large numbers of particles colliding every second. And that's what makes the, the, the energy m sound more impressive. So uh, again, the, the reason why I'm not concerned is that the experiments that would lead to the production of black hole uh, has already been done, is being done during the course of this interview hundreds of thousands of times in, in nature around us. And, uh, and obviously, you know, the interview is not going to be cut short by black hole uh, eating us, uh, uh, engulfing us. So I, I'm not concerned. Could you talk a little bit about how do the people who are building these experiments out evaluate the safety? Evaluate the safety with respect, there are several aspects of the safety. Uh, you are referring to the specific aspect of uh, related to black holes? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, in terms of uh, how do, do, one of the things that strikes me is that, that this is, 
this whole experiment, in fact, this whole story, is like something out of a science fiction novel. Uh, 30 years ago, this would have been, or 50 years ago, this would have been a Robert Heinlein novel. And so, uh, but it might not have had such a happy ending. <laughs> so I'm wondering, when you're evaluating these kind of hazards, there's maybe a tendency to think, well, that parallel universe, that's something out of Robert Heinlein. That's not something I have to worry about. Yeah, no. So there are two aspects of uh, of safety. What you may call the known uh, issues and the potentially uh, unknown issues. So known issues involve standard physics. For example, the beam is very intense. So if it gets misguided, it can drill a hole through walls. Uh, so there is radioactive. So those are very well understood and taken care of by essentially having systems, magnetic fields, the magnetic fields that guide the protons inside the machines are very well regulated so that if there is ever uh, an accident, uh, the, the accelerator will turn off if the, if the beam is not, doesn't go where it's supposed to go, if inside the pipes that it's supposed to move. Uh, now, as to these dangers... We're talking. We were talking about the known dangers, the the, the problems with the, uh, you know, the the tubing, and we can understand. Yes, you can shut that down, but the the real dangers that that are being in contention here are the unknowns. How do we yeah. anticipate unknowns and make sure that we're you know observing the precautionary principle? I mean, with global warming, there's some debate about this, but our our calculation is that if the planet's in peril. Maybe it's better not to throw the switch. Right. Uh, and, and this is a fine principle. So what do we mean by the unknown dangers? What we mean is new particles, for example, uh, such as uh, small black holes would be, uh, that have never been produced, at least in the laboratory, before. And the way we... Uh, uh, we we handle or we uh, these unknowns is first of all the the argument that we were discussing before is that these particles, if if these theories beyond the standard model are correct, these particles were being produced are being produced as we speak all around us through collisions of cosmic rays, which are very high energy elementary particles that come from all over the sky with matter on the Earth, like protons on the Earth. So it is the theory may be unknown to us, but these phenomena are not unknown to the universe. They are occurring all the time. So if these theories that we are looking for are correct, nature is doing this experiment thousands of times, continuously all around us. So in the fact that uh, strangelets or black holes have not consume the Earth or other astrophysical objects is a very strong evidence, uh, factual evidence, independent of theory, if you wish, that we are, we are safe. So that's one very pragmatic way to address the issue. And the other is uh, a more theoretical way, which is the following. Even though the particles may be new, the laws of nature, the, the things that have already been established through hundreds of years of experimentation, are not, are not new. So we can use known uh, laws of nature to predict what 
will happen if there are new particles that are discovered. And those theoretical arguments also support that we don't have to worry. And they are, of course, consistent with the experimental fact that cosmic ray collisions have not led to our demise. Uh, <clears throat> if we're going to debate this, uh, could you comment on the idea of debating this in the legal system? I think it's a good idea to uh, debate this. It, I think the debate has already happened in scientific quarters. This, uh, this was one of the very first things back in 98 when these theories with, uh, which predict black holes being produced at the Large Hadron Collider, uh, uh, these theories, as soon as they were proposed, this debate started in the scientific community. Uh, and it was uh, settled among scientists that it is not a concern. And the same thing with, with strangelets. For the reasons I told you before, both observational reasons and theoretical uh, reasons. Uh, now, and I think it's very reasonable to go, to sp to go beyond the scientific community and, uh, and discuss this. Uh, this has already happened. CERN, uh, uh, the, the European Center for Nuclear Research, is very aware of the importance of these uh, issues. The debate has definitely extended at the level of CERN, and uh, uh, you know the city of Geneva and Switzerland are very, very much interested in their existence and their continued existence. So, uh, but spreading the debate further uh, is, I think, it is healthy. I wouldn't call it a debate in the sense that. It is more of an education. The scientists doing a good job of educating the public uh, about all the measures that have been taken. And I think it's reasonable to discuss this. Now, the precise timing of why this happens three months you know, before the machine is supposed to turn on may involve some human psychology that you know, I'm not particularly interested in commenting on. But uh, the... Uh, the scientific debate has definitely happened, and some uh, uh, aspect of it has spread beyond the scientific. You know, local politicians and, and CERN are, uh, uh, has made sure that people outside, people that are interested in their survival, have have heard about it. But I think it's healthy to discuss it. The arguments are solid, and uh, we can. I mean, we can, we can go in a little more uh, uh, detail for why, uh, for both the observational and the theoretical reasons why I feel that uh, we are not in danger. <clears throat> I'm wondering if, if one thing that really fascinated me is, is that your um, split supersymmetry theory suggests that there are an, an enormous variety of universes. Now, again, this sounds like something out of a science fiction novel. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the interplay, maybe, between science fiction, which kind of imagines these wild things with no uh, basis, and then a as the physicists start to explore the real world and, and create theories that explain things that we've read about in books. Yes. So this, in fact, in fact, uh, the uh, theory of split supersymmetry is, in a sense, 
motivated by the existence of many, uh, the possible existence of many universes as a possible theoretical frameworks that would uh, indicate or uh, would uh, argue in favor of this point of view. So the, the idea that there are many universes dates back to, in fact, it goes uh, way back, it dates to cosmological speculation that is based on uh, a problem that we have not discussed, the so-called cosmological constant problem. So this is a debate that started long ago, way before the era of, uh, of split supersymmetry. The, l let me tell you, instead of giving you a historical perspective, I'll tell you how the multiplicity of the universes emerges in, in a theoretical context, which is very interesting. Usually, when we talk about a theory, we talk about a mathematical structure that is supposed to describe the world and, in fact, has been experimentally tested uh, aspects of it, at least, as many as possible aspects of it, have been experimentally tested and they match with what we observe in the, in the real world. Okay? Now, these so-called theories often have many solutions. And I'll give you a, a simple example, what we call the standard model, which is supposed to describe everything we've observed up to date, has solutions. For example, this chair that I'm sitting on, is a solution of the equation of the standard model. Uh, you know, this book that we are looking at is a solution of the equations of the standard model, etc., etc. You, me, these are all uh, systems or objects that satisfy or solve the equations of the standard model. So a given theory can have many, many solutions. Uh, similarly, a given theory can have many possible big objects, not as small as books or chairs, but as big as the universe, that are solutions. So a given theory can have many possible universes as solutions. Uh, and this is particularly true in theories with extra dimensions, such as string theory, where there is so many variables, so, so, so many extra components, moving parts, that uh, there is a plethora of, uh, of solutions associated uh, with, it, with, with them. So the existence of many universes is not particularly uh, surprising if, uh, in, in, in the theoretical sense. Uh, s what happened in the last uh, decade or so is that uh, the community has been focusing more and more on these alternate solutions or so-called alternate universes that uh, have physical properties different than our own. For example, this could be universes where there could be universes where atoms don't exist. Uh, now, these would be very odd universes. We couldn't live in them because we are made out of atoms and atoms are very important for our existence. But there could be out there somewhere very far away from our universe, there could be other places, which you can call universes, with completely different laws of nature where atoms don't exist, or other places where galaxies don't exist. And these could still be 
part of the grand theory, different solutions of the same grand theory that is supposed to describe all these universes at the same uh, at the same time. So now this is a very theoretical thought and it was thought to be pretty useless as an observation and people didn't focus on it ex until recently. And what happened recently uh, over 20 years ago, Steven uh, uh, Weinberg, uh, who is a, a famous particle physicist at the University of uh, Texas at Austin, uh, pointed out that you can understand one of the most puzzling aspects of our universe by postulating that there is a plethora, there is a tremendous multiplicity of universes, and, uh, and arguing that some of what we observe may be selected by the requirement of our very own existence. For example, uh, the requirement that there are atoms or that there are galaxies is such a delicate uh, property of our universe that most other universes where the laws of nature are somewhat, even ever so slightly different than ours, would not be able to accommodate atoms or galaxies. And such universes may well exist, but we can't possibly be part of them. This is a very famous reasoning, line of reasoning called the anthropic reasoning, which argues that some of what we may observe are maybe purely environmental because we couldn't have lived in another environment. And uh, there is now, this is a now very popular uh, topic of debate. There are books devoted with my colleague Leonard Saskan has written a whole book on this point of view. Uh, and uh, it is one of the hottest debates of our, of, of our time. Uh, what I wanted, to, I wanted to give you a flavor that there is some theoretical indication for this debate in the context of in favoring the existence of many universes in the context of string theory. And there is also some pragmatic successes that the smallness of some quantity, which is called the energy of the vacuum, can be accounted for uh, by uh, these anthropic requirement that there must be galaxies for you know, planets and stars and human life to be possible. We've been speaking with Savas Tamopoulos. He's a professor of physics at Stanford University. Thank you for joining me, Savas. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.